If only you knew then what you know now. Would you do things differently? Would you make better choices? I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. And guess what? It is not too late. Who says it is? Not the people you're about to hear from, because they'll have you convinced that no matter what age you are right now, you can make a meaningful difference in your life. And I'm talking about starting today. And you're going to hear from a guy who lives in the villages who is passionate about poetry and how that has made a change in his life. But first, it's a medical doctor who believes the best place to improve our brain is not on the operating table, but around the kitchen table, someplace we gather all the time. We're about to take a seat at the Brain Health Kitchen. All you need to do, folks, is dream, believe, and persist. It's time for Growing Bolder. What is one of the best ways to radically improve your health? Well, here's a hint. It isn't medicine. This is Growing Bolder, and I'm Bill Schaefer, and our next guest is a physician who believes the best way to radically improve your health is through cooking. She even stopped practicing medicine so she can help prove it to the rest of us. Her goal is to help us all cultivate the kind of healthy habits that she's learned that it takes to keep our brains thriving, especially as we age. So... What do we need to do? There's a book out now that makes it simple, clear, and even enjoyable. It's called Brain Health Kitchen, Preventing Alzheimer's Through Food. And joining us now is its author, Dr. Annie Fenn. How are you, Dr. Fenn? Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm not doing as well as you are. I just finished my lunch of a 40-pound bag of potato chips with onion dip. So if I get a little... Oh, no. (laughs) Please don't tell me that. (laughs) Probably not good for brain health, huh? Well, I always say the the brain-healthy diet doesn't have to be perfect. Well, that's a great point. And we do want to get into that because I I love that because it makes it a lot less intimidating and it makes us feel like we all have a chance to at least improve ourselves. You know, I I just had my annual physical and I kind of get the feeling that if I would have asked my doctor, what what kind of things can I eat to improve my brain health? They'd probably say, well, there's really not a lot you can do, especially when it comes to dementia as far as curing it and even less you can do to prevent it. But, But you disagree. You think we can make a difference. Absolutely, we can make a difference. There's a large body of scientific that addresses dietary pattern and how the brain ages. In one instance, Alzheimer's and other types of dementia can be thought of as an extreme of accelerated brain aging. And all the things that interact with our brains throughout our lives, especially at midlife, can really have an impact on whether we accelerate cognitive decline or we slow down that process. And food is a huge part of it. So yeah, this is kind of like a good news, bad news thing, because I think for, uh, for a lot of us, if the answer isn't a pill, we sort of think, well, it's too much work, or I couldn't possibly change my lifestyle just to protect my brain. Yeah, I would never tell anyone that just one thing that will protect their brain and nourish it for later decades to stay sharp. Um, it's really a system of things, and that makes sense, right? It's not just one food like eating berries or leafy greens, but it's a system of choosing mostly whole foods and passing on ultra-processed foods and choosing some of the most neuroprotective foods that we know we have, like berries, leafy greens, beans, vegetables, extra virgin olive oil. You know, these foods are also extremely delicious. So one of the reasons I wrote the book is so that people could access this science and bring it into their own homes and their own kitchens. So I really do think that brain health begins in the kitchen. It's a great concept, too. I think the prob- one of the problems that we have when we hear messages like that is we're all so used to diets. And diets are very rigid and regimented. And I love what you say about this is not a diet. This is a way to eat where you kind of uh, help yourself reduce the chances of having things go wrong. So... You say that you don't have to go 100% from today to tomorrow to change in order to improve yourself. 
That's absolutely true. And one of the newest studies we have about the impact of dietary pattern, and just like you, I do not like the word diet. It implies that you go on a pattern of eating and then you go off of it to go back on your previous pattern of eating. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a lifelong way of eating that supports brain healthy lifestyle and vibrant aging. That's that's the whole idea. The latest study we have showed that there's less amyloid and plaque deposition in the brain based on certain food groups. And one of the most important food groups that had a big impact was just eating leafy greens. So even small changes like working on increasing that one food group in what you eat in a daily, weekly basis can have impact. There's a lot about dementia that we don't understand. First of all, I think that we believe it's an old person's disease. But one of the interesting points that you make is that it sure seems to take root a lot earlier than that. People are most surprised when I tell them that Alzheimer's begins in the brain 20 to 30 years before the first memory lapse. Um, We used to think, as physicians even, that Alzheimer's was something that happened when you got older, you know, in your 70s, your 80s you know, your grandfather got Alzheimer's. It's like he got Alzheimer's, right? But now we know that the process leading up to diagnosis of Alzheimer's actually happens decades earlier. There are a whole host of inflammatory and toxic things in our environment and our foods. Some of us have genetic predispositions that can have an impact on how our brain ages. And these amyloid proteins and tau proteins that are found in Alzheimer's they're not, they're perhaps not the cause of the disease, but the result of chronic inflammation that builds over decades to create an environment in the brain where Alzheimer's finds a way in. You know, a lot of people try to, uh, when they write a book or come up with a diet, they'll, they'll say, well, look, science proves that, that this happens. So what you're talking about, say if the odds are 50% that we'll end up with some sort of dementia, uh, by eating healthy, by following your advice, you're not talking about knocking the odds down to 48%. This could be a significant change. Yes. I mean, we do have excellent data, especially out of Rush University, looking at one particular dietary pattern called the MIND diet, the M-I-N-D diet. It's a spinoff of the Mediterranean diet. Just in four and a half years, they showed that participants had a 53% reduced risk of Alzheimer's. And if you kept following that study out longer and longer, those risk reductions would continue to build. And we're just talking about food here. We know that exercise is another whole entity that's very important for aging with a vibrant, healthy brain. And then there's other pieces to the puzzle, too, that we're learning, like good quality and getting enough sleep. We know that while we sleep, our brain seems to clean up from some of the inflammatory and toxic insults that accumulate throughout the day. But you don't get that benefit if you're not getting good quality and enough sleep. Another aspect is stress mitigation. You know, chronic stress has been proven to be bad for the brain over time. We know that the brain actually shrinks over time in people who are under chronic stress, like living in areas of air pollution or um, who've been, you know, subjected to racism or things like that. We do have MRI data showing that this has an impact on the volume of the brain over time. So when you put all of these things together, We can have a tremendous impact on whether or not we age with a healthy brain, cognitively intact, or whether we start to see signs of cognitive decline starting in our 60s. And if healthy food can help my brain, why does my brain keep trying to convince me to have more ice cream? Because especially here in the U.S., you know, 60% of calories that people consume in the U.S. come from ultra-processed food. We're all very busy and have very busy modern lifestyles. And we're used to reaching for the easiest, fastest, cheapest foods to nourish our bodies. But now we're finding that it's doing exactly the opposite. Ultra-processed food like ice cream and pizza and you know your potato chips and your onion dip, processed dairy, processed meat, sweet drinks like soda pop and juice, these are the top of the list of brain-harming foods. And what they do over the time is they create a metabolic state where your body becomes insulin resistant and can get diabetes. Your brain, the memory center of your brain also becomes insulin resistant. It also creates um, an unhealthy cardiovascular system. We know our brain depends on a vast network of very healthy blood vessels, especially the tiny ones that supply the brain. A lot of the ultra processed food that we're eating is really working against us when we're trying to age with cognitive health. 
You know, we also eat those foods because that's that's kind of what we know. I mean, we, we kind of know how to shop. We can go in and do it real quickly in the store. We're all busy, right? So we get home in the evening and, man, we don't want to take an hour to have to make something we're not sure how to do it. How difficult is it from your experience? I don't know. That's that's what the book Brain Health Kitchen is all about, kind of teaching us how to relearn how to eat, what to make, what to cook. Well, I'll tell you, I come from perspective as being a busy MD physician. As you mentioned, I was an obstetrician gynecologist for 20 years. For seven years, I was solo. I was raising my own family. I had two small children. I literally would get home from work at seven o'clock with three hungry people looking at me, asking me what's for dinner. So I totally get it about being busy, about being rushed, about not feeling like there's time to cook. But I always felt like I needed to put a good, healthy meal on the table. So I drew from a lot of this experience of these desperation dinners that I did for so much of my career when I wrote the book. And I wrote this book for everyone, not just for people who love to cook, but people who maybe don't really like to cook that much, but they are willing to assemble some foods that they purchased at the grocery store that are very well thought out and nourishing and brain healthy. So this book is for, it's basically for everyone, whether you're vegetarian, vegan, an omnivore, a pescatarian, there's no one brain healthy diet, but there are commonalities in all the studies that show us that we should reach for certain foods and include them in our dietary pattern every day. I think when we're young, sometimes we feel like, well, I don't have to start that tomorrow. I got plenty of years left. But as we get older, uh, do we get to where it sort of does become too late at some point? No, it's never too early to embark on a brain-healthy lifestyle, and it's really never too late. I will say, though, that most of our data comes from people at midlife, those between the ages of 45 and 65. So midlife people, what you do at midlife, how you exercise, whether or not you're getting good sleep, what are the foods you eat, how many of your calories are coming from ultra-processed foods, whether or not you have hypertension or borderline diabetes, these things are crucial for how your brain will perform in the decades to come. So midlife is a special group where action is really necessary to turn things around if you're not on a brain-healthy path. But we also have studies in people in their 70s showing if they switch from a nutrient-poor dietary pattern, such as a standard American diet, to one that's more uh, brain healthy, like the Mediterranean dietary pattern, they actually get brain gains that you can see on MRI. You can see that their brains are shrinking at a much slower rate, and that all translates to better brain health. Yeah, that's incredible. It's not just hearsay. There actually is uh, proof that what you're doing can make a difference. Your book explains things, and, and you almost like give labels to certain things. One that I really, really like that I think uh, our listeners will, will be interested in is talk about cognitive reserve and how we use that to lower the odds for dementia. Yes, cognitive reserve is a very important concept in Alzheimer's and dementia prevention. Cognitive reserve is, I think of it as money in the bank. It's all the stuff that you store in your brain that you've accumulated through your lifestyle in your entire life through things that you've learned. It's the music that you know how to play. It's the songs you recognize. It's the languages that you've learned. It's the things you learned in school, but it's also the emotional intelligence you learned outside of school, how to relate to people. Um, it's all of these things. Cognitive reserve boosts the connectivity in your brain so that if you did succumb to some Alzheimer's pathology, like we're all we're all gaining some sort of amyloid or tau or some other type of pathology as we get older as a process. If you already have pathology in your brain, your brain is so resilient and resistant to that that it has collateral pathways so that the brain still functions. We have studies on nuns in the Midwest on cognitive reserve that show that those that worked later in life that stayed cognitively active, when they donated their brains to science after they passed, they actually had, some of them actually had Alzheimer's when you look at their brains under the microscope, but they never had any evidence of the disease clinically. They had so many collateral pathways based on their cognitive reserve that they basically didn't get Alzheimer's. That's what we're talking about. You know, there are a lot of us these days that jump on the uh, uh, things like 23andMe, where they look at your, at, at, to see what your odds are, what are you predisposed to. If we do something like that, and you know, it's some, for some people it's very alarming because you see you're predisposed to something like dementia, can we do anything about it or is it a foregone conclusion? Well, you know, there's a whole new field of medicine looking at precision nutrition for people with genetic challenges. 
And so I would say that there are things that we can do, especially in the Alzheimer's world, and someone who knows they carry one or two copies of ApoE4, which is a risk gene for late onset Alzheimer's disease. It's a very common risk gene. One in 25 Americans carry it. If you have one copy, your risk is increased roughly three to five fold over someone who doesn't have it. But if you have two copies, your risk is increased 15 fold. And if you're a woman who carries ApoE4, you have even higher risk than the same diagnosis of a man. So here's how I feel about getting genetic testing. For some people, it's really helpful. Maybe they needed to see that they have a genetic predisposition to really turn their lifestyle around and start eating for brain health, like really take this stuff seriously and change, you know, the foods that they bring into their home and the way that they cook and the way they live their lives. Some people that can be a very powerful motivator, but for others, it can be also a source of worry and concern. And so if you're already doing all the things that we know in 2023 to prevent Alzheimer's and dementia, and there are a lot of them, then maybe you don't need to get checked for ApoE4. It's a very personal thing that should be discussed with a physician. You know, what's interesting, I'm sure I can almost see, you know, I know my family, I know there are friends, there are a lot of people listening to this who agree with everything you've said this entire interview. And, and we're all kind of like, we're, you're, we're yeah, she's 100% right, but we don't do anything about it until something catastrophic happens. So from someone who has seen people at every stage of life, what do you, what do you wish we understood? I wish people understood how much power they actually hold to to um, control what their later decades in life will be like. You know, those of us who are parents who are getting older, you know, we know how much, how difficult it is to take care of them. You know, one of the impetuses for me to write this book was when my mom was diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment, which turned out to be an early form of Alzheimer's disease. And now she's in the middle stages of this disease. They say that a person doesn't get Alzheimer's, the whole family gets Alzheimer's. And that's certainly what's happening in my family. So a lot of those, those of us in midlife now who are seeing this play out in the people that we love who are older than us need to know that we can be empowered to change the way we age. And it's really not that difficult. It's really very simple, especially when it comes to the brain healthy diet and the foods are delicious. They're easy. And the first step, like you said, the first step to make a change is to ask yourself, why is this important to me? Why do I care about my brain and how do I want to start taking better care of myself? Such great points. And, and you talk also that it's important for caregivers to eat as healthy as they can because you need every ounce of strength you have to do your job to the best of your ability. And it's one issue that I think we all have about food is that everything flip-flops. Eggs are great. Don't eat eggs. Use coconut oil. Stay away from coconut oil. You know, it gets so confusing. Are there general takeaways that you have that makes it a little easier for us? Absolutely. Um, we already talked about ultra-processed food. That's a big one that's off the table. It doesn't mean you can never have a potato chip again, or you can never have, you never get to eat a French fry again, but these should be looked at as occasional treats not something that is in your dietary pattern on a weekly or daily basis. So number one, ultra processed foods off the table. That means that most of what you eat is whole foods. And there are 10 brain healthy food groups. There are roughly six that we should be limiting or avoiding. And if we stick to these guidelines, it's really is a playbook for an easy way to make the right choices until it becomes intuitive to yourself that this is a brain healthy food, that's definitely not a brain healthy food. And then when you're faced with these choices, you ask yourself, why is this important to me? What is it that I want to be like in my 80s, in my 90s? What is it that I want for myself and my family? It all comes back to the why and the brain health mindset. Well, it is such a meaningful book. It's called The Brain Health Kitchen. There is so much more information at brainhealthkitchen.com. This has been a really important conversation with physician, author, and culinary instructor, Dr. Annie Fenn. Thanks, Annie. The Power of Poetry. Don't look over your shoulder because that's coming up next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Advent Health Well 65 Plus. 
Primary care designed for those on Medicare or Medicare Advantage plans featuring 30 to 60 minute appointments and 24 hour care team access from a nationally renowned network. Advent Health Well 65 Plus, primary care that gets better with age. And our guest today is a poet, uh, a poet who lives in the Villages, Florida, which is not just the largest active adult community in the world, it's the fastest growing metro area in the United States. I don't even know what the population is. I, I think it's over 150,000 now. Uh, I do know that it's projected to grow to nearly half a million by the year 2060. So uh, what does today's guest do? Uh, I think the question is, what doesn't he do? He is the president of the Writers League of the Villages. He's a board member of Boulder in the Villages, one of the hot new clubs in town. He is the host of the Wine and Words monthly literary talk show. He's the author and producer of the It Happened in the Villages Murder Mystery Play series, and he's the author of a great new book of poetry that's called Sunset Years, Poems for Seniors Who Still Love Life and Each Other. Lots to talk about as we welcome Frank Lancione. Frank, how are you doing today? Wonderful, Mark. You know, I appreciate your time. As, as busy as you are, I want to get to your book in a moment uh, because I did thoroughly enjoy it. But but I think, you know, as kids, we all enjoy Roses Are Red and, you know, there was a man from Nantucket. Uh, you know, we, we all had that part of our life. When did you begin to take poetry seriously? Is this a later in life pursuit for you or have you always been a poet? No, uh, <laughs> No, I was a senior vice president of operations, working killer hours, never had any time for that. When I retired, which I did at 66, as I started to get closer and closer to 70, I had an interesting discussion with my doctor. He basically said, you're going to have a lousy retirement and it's your fault. <laughs> you, need to, uh, you need to drastically change your uh, style of living if you want to have a good retirement. So I walked out of it. I'm a goal-directed person. I said, okay, I've got two years. I'm going to, by the time I hit 70, I'm going to lose 60 pounds. I'm going to be doing, well, I did all those things. And as I started to go towards that, I wanted to record that journey. And I found that doing so in rhyme and verse focused my thoughts, really made you distill the essence of what you were experiencing. And so about four years later, I had friends saying, you've got all these poems. Because at Wine and Words, which is a literary talk show, I interview authors. They have a chance to read from their works. I usually share some of my stuff. And my, my colleagues were coming in saying, you need to write a book of your stuff. So I, this past year, I put together the collection. It ended up being 107 poems, kind of thematically grouped. And, uh, and that's how it was. And I, I still find a lot of comfort. Talk, if you will, Frank, a little bit about the importance of support and encouragement. Uh, you know, I think there, there's two different camps of people as we get older. A lot of people just become more timid. Uh, they're afraid to take risks. They're afraid to fail. They're afraid of embarrassment. Uh, and many people on their own can't take the step out to try something new. Uh, and they need that encouragement, that support. Uh, what have you seen in your own life about the importance of encouraging and supporting others to chase their dreams, even if they seem silly? At this stage in our life, when you finally get work behind you, people are saying, my gosh, who, who's going to know my story? Who's going to tell my story? Maybe I should tell my story. And so they may have thought about writing the memoir of some sort at some point in their time, but they've never really known how to start. And they ended finding their way to the Writers League. We now have, we're going to have over 300 members by the end of the year. Some of them are internationally recognized authors who get up every day to see how many books they sold in Japan and India. <laughs> but many of them are just coming in for the first time. They've got an inkling that they'd like to write their life story and they don't know how to even start. And it is extremely helpful to be in a community of people who are going to lift you up. So in our case, we have three main goals to our club. We help you become a better writer. We have master classes on that and different uh, types of critique groups. We help you market your group. This past year, we did a book expo with over 100 of our authors. And uh, we had 3,300 people come through in a six-hour period and 
People were selling out of their books. They were delighted. And the last thing we do is we provide an opportunity for you to socialize with other writers. So people get very comfortable. They feel like, you know what? I'm not the only one who's new at this. These people are giving me a lot of good feedback. They're giving you a lot of, of good work. So this ability to find a place where there are people who will help you, give you that initial hand up, and it means everything and people are successful. But let's get to the book if we can, because this is a great book and it is filled with fun, inspiring, thoughtful poems. But but Frank, check me if I'm wrong. I think it's really a book about love and you know, you don't have to be a genius to figure that out because your chapter titles make it pretty clear. I mean, the chapter titles are things like poems for seniors who still love one another, poems for seniors who still love life, poems for seniors who love cruising the Caribbean, poems for seniors who are not ready for the rocking chair. And, and as you noted before we started this conversation, you and I are, are kindred spirits in the way that we look at life because at Growing Boulder, folks, you know this by now, you know, we look at, at growing older as a blessing, uh, something to be grateful for. We look at it uh, through a prism of passion and purpose and not simply loss and limitation. And, and Frank, that is you to a T, and that's this book to a T. So, so tell me what you were trying to accomplish with this book, and am I right to say that it's a love story? Oh, absolutely. So, Mark, you know what life is like at this age. Uh, as we approached our 50th anniversary, which was last year, I started writing poems about that. Actually, my wife and I in 2021 went on a three-month, 10,000-mile RV trip around the country. Prior to that, our longest RV trip had been a three-mile test drive. And then we had six months to get ready for this 10,000-mile 10 10, trip. We came back from that, and I said, you know, if there's something wrong with your RV, it's the stresses of this kind of a trip are going to break it, and you're going to see it spending night and day together for three months under circumstances that are completely unfamiliar and you're stretching every time you go out. If there's something wrong with your relationship, it's going to break. And ours didn't. Actually, we kind of got closer from the trip. And so when I came back, I wrote one poem about that. And then the floodgates opened. <laughs> and then it was coming up on our anniversary. And all of a sudden I started contemplating what does it mean to be married to somebody for 50 years? And I think the, the, the line that comes to me that, that really encapsulates all of it is, after a lifetime with you as lo lover, partner, best friend, it's hard for me to even say where I start and you end. So think about those couples that have been lucky enough to have whatever period of time, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, those years are decades of your own life and the experiences of your life, the who you are, get shaped not just by you, but by your joint experiences. And so if you think about your life that way, yeah, it's a love story. But can I can I read one? Can I read one quick poem to you? Well, you beat me to it. I, I was yeah. going to ask, ask you to do it. Yes, please. All right. So there's one of my lines in my poems say, the young can't imagine is full of passion. Well, this is one of my favorite this is what it's like to be 70 poems. It's called 16. <laughs> the summer sun's hot, we're cruising along, car radios blasting, a country rock song, volumes cranked up, I am too. I love driving fast and being with you. We're both 70 plus, but I feel 16. To me, you're still as beautiful as any prom queen. I didn't know back then I'd ever have this life. Working years behind me, you as my wife, I didn't know then I'd still love the rush of fast cars and loud music making you blush. The young think old means they're through. <laughs> they don't know me. They don't know you. Careening down life's road with you by my side is still a thrill. One hell of a ride. To me, you're still the prettiest girl I've ever seen. Our bodies may be 70, but our hearts are still 16. As an author, when you write a book, I mean, do, do you think about who you want to read it? And, and, I, and I say this because this is one of the problems with our culture is that when you create content that uh, presumably is for an older audience, young people shy away from it. But, but what you just read, the message that you just delivered, 
is so powerful and so profound and so needed uh, by younger people to understand that here you are in your 70s and you're still cruising down the highway enjoying life as much as you did when you were 16. That's a message that people need to understand when they're younger. So so are you finding younger people are, are finding their way to, to your book or, and, and do you hope that they do? Well, I don't get demographics on who buys. The book has been very successful in its first couple of weeks. It was the hot new read in American poetry, contemporary poetry, and poetry anthologies on Amazon. So the book did very well out of the gate. Um, What's kind of interesting is in the, in the, uh, uh, the elevator speech for the book, what I say in the last line is um, it's a, it's a prescription that living applies regardless of your age or life stage. A lot of this book is advice that I wanted to pass down to my, uh, my grandkids. Because like most people, my grandkids are um, eight and 11. So by the time they really take an interest in, well, who were, who were Nana and Papa and what were their life about? I mean, and, and really understand that, we'll be gone. So uh, for example, and you'll relate to this being an athlete, um, a couple of years ago, I, I had an injury and I was powerlifting at the time, pretty heavy powerlifting, intermediate level. And uh, so I was out of powerlifting for about eight weeks. Well, it took me 14 weeks to get back to where I was. And I said, you know what? I'm going to write a poem every week about this because I want my grandkids to know that life gives you these setbacks and it is god awful hard to get through. You've got to keep focused, but that you can make it through. And I want that message to be there for them. So, so there are there are little Easter eggs like that throughout here. That that it's a message to anybody. And, and frankly, anytime I'm facing big setbacks, I go back and and look at that series of poems and try to remind myself that stay focused, harden your body, harden your will. You can make it. You can do it. You've done it before. You can do it. So yeah, the message I think applies to different ages, not just us, but to the younger folks. And, and the beauty of poetry, I think, is that, you know, not only delights our ear, but, uh, you know, it stimulates our, our mind and our imagination. It makes me or it makes us think about things that we wouldn't wouldn't otherwise. Um, you know, one of the things I like about the book, not for every poem, but there are many poems where you write a narrative before the poem to, you know, explain what it's about, uh, the circumstance that inspired you to write it. Uh, and, and again, full disclosure, folks, and I was blown away by this. Um, uh, there, there's a page in there about growing bolder, uh, and, and not just the, the the concept of growing bolder, but specifically about uh, you know our company here at Growing Bolder. And then there's just tons of poems that reflect you know our shared interest in inspired, active, passionate aging. There's at least five poems. And by the way, you're being very modest. That introduction is not just about growing bolder. That introduction is about Mark Middleton. Because growing bolder is not just Mark's story. It's the story of all of us. And, and, you know, Mark went through the same journey that all of us have, where at some point in your life, you realize, my gosh, the culture is writing me off. <laughs> if I were to accept the messages that are being given to me, well, uh, you know, I'm going to be in decline. And that's not it. And so Mark went on and created the whole philosophy of growing bolder. And I say, is growing, is growing older a bad thing? Depends where you are. In an Asian culture, they equate life experience with wisdom. And so in an Asian culture, as you grow older, you become more valued and more valuable in the society. In America, particularly in our commercial activities, our advertisers have focused on the young. That creates a situation in which you grow less valuable if you were to believe what the ageist advertising images are, uh, as you get older. And it's the reverse. It's the reverse. You know what? Again, thank you for that. But, but, but here's the truth, since you brought it up. We're just the conduit to share people like you. You know, we can sit here and say things all day long and we all hear people blah, 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 blah. But, you know, what we have learned and we've talked about this, the thing that transforms lives, you know, the the switch is flipped. People realize they can do more when they see someone like you 
doing something that they didn't think they could do or want to do. When they see a guy in his 70s who is loving life, who is living life, who is writing poems, who is publishing books, who is joining clubs, who is helping others, they think, you know what, there's still reason to keep on keeping on. So so thank you. But, but you know, our secret is just to, to get people like you in front of the camera and on the microphone and, and, and do do their thing. So, so thank you for that. Uh, give us a takeaway, if, if you will, because you're obviously a big thinker, but, but more than that, there's a lot of big thinkers that don't have an empathetic heart, that don't have a kind soul. Uh, you've got all of it. What's the takeaway about life in general? What have you learned that we should know? <laughs> never stop striving, never stop dreaming, never stop achieving. That's the secret to life. That's the message of the book. I love it. Frank, let me leave it with this. Folks, uh, it is a, a fun read. It's an inspiring read. It's a great read. I'm not a reader. I read constantly all day long, but I can't read long books because my day is just punctuated with stuff. But this is something you can pick up, read a few poems, be inspired, smile, feel good about your life, be grateful for the blessing of extra years, put it back down, pick it back up. It's called Sunset Years, Poems for Seniors Who Still Love Life and Each Other. It is fun. It is funny. It is poignant. Thanks, Frank. Thank you, Mark. Up next, after 50 years in Major League Baseball, Davey Johnson will talk about winning at life. This is Growing Boulder. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. Well, if you're a baseball fan at all, you probably know that Davey Johnson was one of the most colorful figures in the game. He's always found a way to win, both as a player and a manager. Davey's now in his late 70s, and he's still finding a way to win the game of life. Orlando, Florida, springtime home of the Washington Nationals, is one of the country's most delightful and beautiful resort cities. Tinker Field is alive with activity as the Washington Baseball Club begins its rigorous spring training drills. This was the time of year where dreams were born. That was especially true in 1953 when a young boy named Davey Johnson stepped onto a big league ball field for the very first time. Not as a player, at least not yet. And it was great. When I went in that locker room with all those guys, I made up my mind when I was 10 years old, I want to be a big leaguer. That's my goal. I'm going to be a big leaguer. What he would need was an opportunity. What he also wanted was an education, so he set his sights on college. When I was going to sign a scholarship at Texas A&M, uh, Tom Chandler offered me a four-year scholarship. He was a very famous baseball coach back in the day. And I, he said, sign the contract. And so I, look, I said, I'd like to read things. And I looked at it and said, one-year scholarship. I said, coach, you promised me four. That says one. He looked me right in the eye and said, that's the problem with the youth today, Davey. You're, you're all looking for security and not an opportunity. I said, give me that thing. I signed it. And uh, that was a big, big lesson I learned. Not security, but opportunity. He learned not just to look for opportunity, but to leap at the chance. We have a lot of young ballplayers in here, and I think we have a lot of great prospects. Uh, I know we have about 10 candidates for my job, and so... It came from the Baltimore Orioles, where he would win four pennants and two World Series. This time, the glove belongs to Dave Johnson on this third inning shot by Pete Rose. Opportunity opened the door, but his positive attitude helped him walk through. He was a four-time All-Star in a 13-year career, and just as that ended, he found another opportunity he became a manager. He took the Mets to the World Series championship in 1986, three other teams to their league championship series, and he won manager of the year in the NL and AL before finally retiring at the age of 70 as one of the greatest leaders in the game. 
pretty much everybody you ever managed probably feels like that guy cared about me. Well, you know, as a manager, um, you always wanted to do one thing, uh, to help the individual player live up to their potential. You didn't want to ever talk to him about anything negative. You always wanted to talk about the things he did well and because uh, you wanted them to have, feel good about themselves, positive about themselves, uh, so that they would get the most out of their ability. And it, I, I feel like I've done that. You know, I knew uh, beforehand that life can be very difficult. Uh, you can have many ups and downs, obviously. I had many ups and downs in my career uh, with injuries and, uh, you know, poor seasons and, and stuff, but I had my successes. So I always think that you can pass that on to anybody uh, how to stay positive. And Davey, you've suffered some of the lows, lowest lows that anybody could. I mean, with, you lost a daughter. Yeah, Andrea was, you know, I, I had three, three great kids. Davey was my, my oldest and uh, Don. Uh, Don and Andrea were very athletic, uh, great swimmers. Andrea loved to go surf in the, the highest waves you can get. And I think she was at a point, she even wanted to jump out of a plane. Uh, she was a risk taker, kind of like me. I feel like I'm kind of a risk taker. And uh, unfortunately, she got sick and, and passed away. Those aren't the only challenges. You've had, like everybody, you look great, but you've had health scares. You, you had half of your stomach removed. You had a heart aneurysm. How are you doing, and how, do you, how does somebody who's an athlete the, the top of their craft physically, how do you deal with, with these health issues? Well, that's a heck of a question because, you know, a lot of people don't understand my body was my life. Uh, my feet, my legs, my arms, my eyes, everything was my life. And all of a sudden, when I hit about 71, you know, now all of a sudden I got tingling feet, I got neuropathy, I got osteoarthritis, uh, had... Uh, arrhythmia, I had a bad stomach and unfortunately they took out half my stomach and I had a ruptured appendix. You know, it's just, when you get older, you know, and my body provided such great success for me and, and uh, was such a good friend of mine, now it's kind of having a little hard time. You just have to accept it, that that's the way it is, and, and go deal with it. And people assume too, Davey, oh, you were baseball, you're, you don't have any financial worries, but you came in kind of early. I came in early. I mean, you know, my first year in the big leagues, I made 6500 bucks. Did you think your life was over when you took the uniform off for the last time? Oh, not at all. Because I always, ever since I put the uniform on as a player or whatever, I felt like you have to have challenges outside of uh, your profession. You have to have other professions. So many players, when they retired, uh, like Elrod Hendricks, when he retired, his life was over as far as he was concerned. He died. Uh, Flanagan, same way. I mean, but I saw it with many more cases other than that. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I had interest outside of baseball that would keep my, me mentally occupied and mentally challenged. Sounds to me like you learned as much as you taught. You do. If you don't learn... You learn every day. I mean, I'm still learning. So, so manage the rest of us. Help us scout. What are the characteristics that make up a winner in life? Well, you know, everybody looks at somebody's ability, you know, especially in baseball, you know, and in, in their mannerisms, whatever. To me, the best, most important thing is their makeup. What's their drive to succeed? And that comes from within and here and here. And I've taken players and won championships with guys that had half the ability of other players. Can you teach that, Davey, or are you born with it? Uh, I think you, you get that through your upbringing and the challenges you face that are early in life. That'll do it for Davey Johnson. And he went out there like he was a man on a mission. You're managing at 70. You fall in love again and change your life and get married in your 50s, yeah. life after 50 wasn't bad for Davy Johnson. No, it was great, you know. And uh, it may be some of the best times of your life after 50. Yeah, you, no question about it. And I don't, I'm not really one that really looks in the past. You know, I, I live today. 
There's plenty, plenty of challenges today and then tomorrow. That's basically how I've always lived. Every day is the most fun day of my life, and that's what I go by. Well, so far on this program, our guests have given us a whole lot to think about. Are you ready for one more thing? Well, stick around because I'm going to tell you what's on my mind, and I guarantee you it will be on your mind after you hear it. That's next on Growing Boulder. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. So what are the things that actually make you, you? Are you what you think or are you what you do? It doesn't matter how old or how young you are. We are all defined by our actions, and that becomes even more true as we age. Geriatrician Dr. Bill Thomas spoke at the Growing Boulder Launchpad to What's Next, and he explains how aging chips away at all the things that don't really matter and helps us become our true selves. I think the, the biggest takeaway, the biggest thing to remember is you be you. That how you live and how you think and how you feel and how you treat other people matters so much more than the year you were born in that if you compare those two things, that that is not even close. So people of all ages can be jerks. People of all ages can be angels. People of all ages can be successful or failures doesn't matter. What matters is you, what's inside of you. And I think, when I think of aging, I think of almost like a sculptor who's got a big block of stone and he kind of knows or she knows that in there there's this great thing and you just chip away. And that's what aging does for us. It chips away all the stuff that's not us. All the stuff that, all the illusions, all the wrong-headed ideas. If you pay attention and you live a long time, you get rid of that stuff, and you become, you become more like your true self. Some great thoughts there from longevity expert Dr. Bill Thomas. And it gives us a pretty good idea of what's on his mind. But, Mark, you kind of have that look like there's something on your mind, too. Well, you know, I'm thinking about our Launchpad event that, that we mentioned earlier just a few nights ago, which was great, Bill. By the way, you did a fabulous job. But, but during that event, I shared two statistics that, that have been on my mind ever since. One is about or it came from the Harvard Study of Adult Development. It started back in 1938. It's been going for 85 years, one of the world's longest longitudinal studies, trying to figure out what leads to happy, healthy aging. It's grown over the years, and what they do is they touch base with this large group of people every few years. They do a survey. They take an inventory of what they're doing, how they live, and here's what they found. The people who are the most healthy at 80 were the ones who were most social at 50. And the takeaway from this entire study was that the number one thing that you should be doing at the age of 50 to ensure that you are healthy at the age of 80 is have strong social relationships. That's how important having good friends is. What is it about socialization? I mean, you would think that they would say exercise or diet's the main thing you have to We watch. are neurologically hardwired to socially connect from the beginning of, of humankind. Uh, you know, we wither, we die, we do not do well when we don't have social connection. So it's critical. And the other thing, and I know you want to weigh in on this, is life expectancy varies a little bit according to the source. Everybody does their research, but everybody agrees that right now life expectancy in the U.S. for a woman, life expectancy at birth is 79. For a man, it's 75. But if you get to 50, life expectancy at 50 for an unhealthy woman, for a woman with an unhealthy lifestyle, is still 79. Life expectancy at 50 for a man with an unhealthy lifestyle is 75. But if you are 50 
and you have a healthy lifestyle and you're a woman, your life expectancy is now 93. And for a man with a healthy lifestyle at 50, your life expectancy is now 87. So you gain 14 years or 12 years, whether you're a woman or a man, by having a healthy lifestyle at 50. And that's the name of the game. It's about health span, folks. It's not about lifespan. It's about how healthy you can be for as long as you can. And it doesn't matter what you did yesterday. What counts is what you're going to do today and moving forward. And the social socialization part is not just to have buddies to talk to. It's to have people around you that encourage you to get out and do things together so you're active, vibrant, and that's, folks, how you start Growing Boulder. The Growing Boulder Radio Show is a production of Growing Boulder, LLC, all rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty trapped. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Something to protect